It started as a simple parade through the middle-class suburb of Teaneck in New Jersey, a celebration of the Indian diaspora. Then a bulldozer appeared with a huge poster of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. For Indian-American journalist Aparna Gopalan, it was a clear sign that a nationalist ideology called Hindutva was now a force in the diaspora. She also found Hindutva supporters are modelling their work on some of the more right-wing pro-Israeli groups in the US. Aparna is news editor at the magazine Jewish Currents. The Hindutva ideology basically originates at the same moment as all of the different European fascisms in the 1920s, and it shares a lot of their DNA. So it's a you know ideology that basically believes in Hindu supremacy in the entire land of India. It believes that Muslim and Christian and other religious minority residents should live kind of under the yoke of the Hindu residents. One of the other founders of Hindutva in 1920s says they want a military regeneration of the Hindus. So it's really a very martial ideology as well that really violently wants to enforce a new status quo in India. How has the Hindutva ideology, though, caught on in the diaspora, especially in a place like the United States, where, forgive my naivety, but I always thought it was the place where you're supposed to come for a fresh start. You leave behind the old dogmas. How has it caught on in the United States? It's a very interesting question. So when the diaspora grows in the United States, which has been happening since the 60s, initially the diaspora was not a very right-wing diaspora, but that changes over time because what happens is that these groups that are promoting Hindutva start their outposts in the U.S. and they start catering to the needs of this new Indian community. Slowly they have these little festivals or they'll have a summer school for your kid parents who are worried that my kid is going to lose their connection to India. So it starts very, very benign. And then once you have all these families invested, you start promoting the actual ideology and you start promoting the hatred of Muslims and Christians. And it's a very successful strategy because from the outside, it looks like this is a cultural organization. And to this day, many of the most far-right Hindu groups in the U.S. are still called cultural organizations. But inside, you see what they're doing and what the activities they fund in India, and they're essentially funding ethnic cleansing of Muslims. In this piece for Jewish Currents magazine, where you're actually the news editor, you describe a recent parade in Teaneck, New Jersey. Very briefly, Aparna, what happened at that parade and what did it represent? The parade was basically a representation of a takeover of the Indian Independence Day festivities by the Hindu right. And in reporting from the period when we see Muslims and you know Indian minorities looking at this parade, they understand that this is a threat that there's... So the parade featured a bulldozer, which is a really violent symbol of India in the eyes of Indian Muslims because uh, Narendra Modi's government in India has been using bulldozers to just knock down Muslim homes and storefronts without any and seeing a bulldozer at an Independence Day parade is really quite a violent shock for these Indian Muslims who are seeing this. When they try to raise an outcry about it, initially they find supporters in the U.S. who understand what's happening, but very quickly these Hindu right groups descend upon the parade and they say any criticism of this parade is Hindu phobic, which is a new term that they have coined. And it's a very successful coinage. It does the job because pretty soon you you know have all these critics of the parade backtracking and saying, okay, I condemn violence against Hindus, even though that is not what was being discussed. We're talking about an unfolding genocide in India. So 
Hindufobia comes into the parade and changes the conversation completely. And we're no longer able to talk about the demolitions of the homes, which is what is. Yeah, Aparna, I mean, the thing is, uh, we talk about Hindufobia. There is religious and ethnic prejudice, frankly, in most countries. Surely Hindus aren't necessarily spared this experience of prejudice, though, are they? No, absolutely not. I can say that from personal experience, from reporting that Hindus are very much still facing the kinds of anti-Asian bias and racism you're living in the West, especially. But I think what Hindu phobia is arguing is different, which is that they're saying not only is it Hindu phobic to call someone a cow piss drinker, which is an obvious slur, but it's also Hindu phobic to say that Narendra Modi's government is a fascist government. They're really taking these kinds of speech that are legitimate political speech and classing it into a form of racism. Also separating anti-Hindu hatred from and all the other kinds of hatred that exist and saying this is a completely unique thing that cannot be classified with the hatred of, for example, Indian Muslims, because for the most part, white supremacists are not distinguishing by religion when they're seeing people of color. And that's not what Hindu phobia believes. Correct me if I'm wrong, Aparna. I think even in the last year of the Trump administration, the State Department or the, um, uh, the US Commission on International Religious Freedom, even in the Trump administration, and Trump was quite close to Narendra Modi, I think even they expressed some concern about Hindutva, didn't they? They have been doing so, yeah, since that year consistently. So for the past four years, they have been saying that India should be placed on a blacklist for violators of religious freedom, that things are so severe in India that the US has to act. And the State Department released its own report this year, which is even more damning, and basically lists hundreds and hundreds of human rights violations. Across the US in many cities and states, there have been laws and ordinances against discrimination based on caste. Why would anyone push back against laws that oppose caste discrimination? The groups that are doing the pushing back are basically the same groups that are bringing a bulldozer onto the Indian Independence Day Parade. These are groups that are Hindu supremacist groups. And part of being Hindu supremacist, one of the core parts, actually, is to make sure that the caste order is maintained and the people at the bottom remain at the bottom. And moreover, that nobody ever talks about it. The reason that these groups oppose these anti-caste laws in the U.S. is because they say that saying the word caste is Hindu phobic. The word itself is Hindu phobic because it unfairly singles out Hindu minorities in the U.S. and incites violence against them. There's really no evidence of this ever happening, but these groups are still going ahead and they want to erase any mention of caste from history textbooks. They want to make sure caste is removed from any non-discrimination policies at state level and city levels and also at workplaces. And and they just want to make sure that this is not a word that is ever considered speakable. So in their list of words that are Hindu phobic, upper caste is actually a Hindu phobic slur, according to these groups. So that's kind of what's going on there. Mm. To what extent have Indian Americans and, and Hindu Indian Americans actually broken through the caste system, though, in the United States? I'm pretty sure you'd find doctors and lawyers whose background is the Dalit caste, wouldn't you? Right. That's that's a change that's been starting to happen in the diaspora, because for a 
really long time, the people who were emigrating were uniformly upper caste. And actually, to this day, that the composition of the diaspora leans very heavily towards dominant castes, but that's changing. And so that is, again, seen as a threat to the established order within the U.S. by upper caste people. And that threat has to be basically stemmed by doing caste discrimination. And these laws are preventing that. So that these laws are seen as very threatening by many people in the diaspora who are upper caste. How is Hindutva, and this absolutely fascinates me, an ethno-religious ideology? Because strictly speaking, can't you convert to Hinduism and thereby overcome any prejudice? I mean, we read about these cases of forced conversions that carries the implication that if you convert, you're in the club and therefore ethnicity has nothing to do with it. How has Hindutva persisted as an ethno-religious or ethno-nationalist ideology? That's a great question. I think the answer is, again, in the 1920s origin moment for Hindutva itself, because like a lot of the fascist ideologies of the 1920s, race and religion in Hindutva bleed into each other. Even though it's nominally only about Hinduism, the religion, it actually posits that Hindus are an an ethnic group as well within India and that you're born Hindu. People who were Muslim and then converted will never truly find their home within Hindutva because it is a very much a blood-based ideology, so to speak. Now, your article is titled The Hindu Nationalists Using the Pro-Israel Playbook, and it appears in the progressive Jewish magazine Jewish Currents. What is this common front that you refer to between the supporters of Hindutva and the hardline pro-Israeli supporters? What is this common front? For a really long time, for many decades, these two groups have been collaborating within the U.S. And the collaboration starts to escalate in the early 2000s after 9-11, when there's members of Congress, for example, who say that we are drawn together by mindless, vicious, fanatic Islamic terrorism. So that's really what is bringing them together, is that India and Israel are both fighting Muslims. They make an alliance out of this fact, and they are you know, selling arms to each other and Israel is making sure that India gets access to U.S. nuclear technology. This is really strong geopolitical partnership that forms between these two countries and the U.S. What's been happening of late is that that partnership is bleeding into the realm of civil society, so to speak, so that all of these groups which are opposing caste bans across the U.S., the Hindu right groups, are now talking to their Jewish counterparts and asking how do we silence this activism that is targeting our ethno-nationalist ideology? You've done it so successfully. Teach us. And then they're learning from that. And that's where you know, you get Hinduphobia. Yeah, well, there are certain common tropes that they say that um, hardline pro-Israelis and Hindutva supporters have to suffer. There's certain tropes they have to bear. You mentioned one of them before, but what are these common tropes? Basically, supporters of Hindutva want to take what's happening to them, allegedly, and, and paint it point by point on top of what's happening to American Jews. So they'll say, you know, we are accused of being demon worshippers. Jews have been accused of being demon worshippers for centuries. Or that we're accused of drinking piss or, you know, and Jews have been accused of drinking blood for centuries. And these kinds of tropes then add up to reaching a point where saying we are accused of having a fascist state or having a racist state and Jews have been accused of having a racist state, not for centuries, but for decades. 
some of the parallels make sense when, when they begin, when they start out. And then some of the parallels really go haywire and make no sense at all, because they also compare things that happened to the Hindu community to the Holocaust and say that just like Jews had the Holocaust, we had Hindus from Kashmir left the area in the 90s. You can really see them trying to basically gain credibility by saying that whatever happened to our Jewish allies has also happened to us. And the Jewish allies are encouraging this strategy, even though if you really look at the numbers, Jews are many, many times more likely to suffer hate crimes in the U.S. than Hindus. So these two groups are not even the same footing uh, in the present day in relation to each other, but that is being erased in this alliance. You do point to this very interesting strategy that both groups have taken, pro-Israel hardliners and Hindutva supporters. Where do they stand on some of these hot-button social and cultural issues in the United States? There's this very uh, influential group in the Jewish community in the U.S., which is called the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And they've pioneered a strategy that is now being used by Hindu groups. The strategy involves having two different hats on, two different wings to the organization. There's the domestic wing, and the domestic wing is basically taking very liberal positions on domestic issues. So you'll find the ADL being pro-LGBTQ rights, pro-abortion in certain cases. They'll be against, you know, racism against black people in the U.S., but there'll also be a foreign wing, and the foreign wing will take the most reactionary positions possible on the question of liberation for the people of Palestine. On the question of terrorism, they'll be extremely pro-funding the defense budget and basically going and bombing all sorts of enemies. The Hindu right has completely adopted the strategy. So you'll see Hindu groups that are so progressive, if you look at them only in the context of the US, and they have the progressive credentials such that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch will be in the same coalition as some of these Hindu right groups. And yet, if you look at their policy on India, They're basically advocating for Hindu nationalism and Hindutva. So it's a very successful strategy that really builds credibility at home so that their activities abroad are obscured. Yeah, so being in favour of abortion rights or being in favour of gender rights, it buys you access that they might not get if people only focused on their agenda regarding India. And they're much harder to dismiss than groups in the US that are very openly anti-abortion because some allies that uh, stand with these Hindu right groups in the U.S. are actually progressives and liberals and people who would never ally with a group like this if they really knew what was going on. So they're able to find these unlikely allies, which really helps their cause. Surely most Indian Americans don't buy into this Hindutva ideology. Is this a case of a loud, maybe a somewhat sizable, but still minority that has hijacked an agenda? That used to be, certainly used to be the case, but their recruitment strategies have been tremendously effective, such that the amount of, you know, amount in donations, for example, that you get from Indian Americans going back to the BJP or their allies in India has dramatically increased since the 1990s, especially since Modi came to power. There were millions and millions of people in the U.S. who were donating to Modi's re-election campaign. They were actually making hundreds of thousands of them were making phone calls to voters in India to convince them to elect Modi. And of course, those numbers of people who don't hold the candle to the population of India, but that is a significant chunk of the diaspora. So the diaspora has become very radicalized in the past two decades. So in those terms, the danger is real. And the diaspora is now expressing its radicalization in voting patterns in the U.S. And we're seeing the rise of very far right 
Hindu nationalist Congress people at the state level and perhaps at the national level soon. It is a concerning trend, even though it's not the entire diaspora. And there are still some segments of the diaspora that are opposing it. Those are some groups I talk about in my article. Aparna Gopalan from Jewish Currents magazine, there's a link to her article and a longer version of that discussion at the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.